When we're at Origin, I prefer meeting with producers one-on-one. I do. It's just, you know, I like hearing the stories of the coffee. Welcome back to Drip, a DC coffee podcast. I'm your host, Austin Brower. As you know, coffee is more than a local phenomenon. Your morning cup comes from regions all around the world, but is typically roasted in the United States. And not surprisingly, even DC is linked to the US and global coffee community. Because of this, Drip felt it was important to start sharing perspectives from organizations outside of DC. Don't worry, Drip will stay focused on DC, but you may see a few special editions here and there. A little bit ago, I took a trip up to New York City to speak with a few coffee organizations that are connected with DC and global coffee entities. These next few episodes will be part of a Drip, a New York City special edition series. In this first NYC special edition episode, we'll hear from Britt Amel. Britt is a certified Q grader and coffee trader at Royal Coffee New York. Royal Coffee New York is a specialty green coffee importer that works with many roasteries and cafes along the East Coast. Through Britt's eyes, we'll experience what it means to really taste coffee and work with people throughout the supply chain. So without further ado, sit back, grab your cup of coffee, and enjoy the episode. Britt, welcome to the Drip, a DC Coffee Podcast, New York Special Edition. Thank you very much, and welcome to New York. Thank you. You're our first interview here in New York. I'm real excited to talk to you. I know we met at Baltimore Coffee Fest a couple months ago. So really excited to be able to talk to you now today and learn more about what you do and also share it with the people who are listening. Nice. I appreciate it. Yeah. So would you mind just saying what your position is and what you do currently in coffee? Sure. Absolutely. My position at Royal Coffee New York is a coffee trader. So trader because it's a traded commodity against the New York Sea market. And what we basically do is sales. So we do sell green coffee to our customers along the East Coast. But there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of things that we're involved with. Me particularly, I am a Q grader as well. So there's a lot of cupping involved on a day-to-day basis, a lot of feedback giving back to suppliers, a lot of work, a lot of coffee drinking, selling, and sourcing going on throughout the day. Basically, you get the coffee shops and roasteries good coffee to roast and sell to customers, right? Exactly. And Q grading, I think we've talked about it a little bit, but do you mind just sharing, you know, one or two sentences on what Q grading is? So for those that aren't too familiar with it, I like to compare it to being like a wine sommelier. That's a good way to kind of introduce it to someone. And it's basically a six-day course, including 20-plus exams, Uh where there's a lot of thorough cupping and green grading, evaluating roasted coffee as well. And once you complete all of the exams, you are a certified Q grader. So with doing that, you're basically calibrated with anyone else who is a Q grader. You're able to go to these coffee-producing countries and cup with someone in Peru or Honduras, and you almost end up with the same exact scores for the coffees Mm -hmm. and the same exact cupping notes. You become very sensitive to defects. So it's a very important certification because it just kind of creates that universal language for coffee. Wow. Yeah, that was put really nicely. And Thank you. So the scores that you give, say, at Origin or even here in New Jersey when you're cupping, what does that do? Number one, it determines if a coffee is specialty grade. So it has to be above an 80 for it to be considered specialty. Out of 100, right? Correct. 
Anything below 80 is considered commercial grade or it can be past crop. It could have been a specialty coffee that's just tired and older or it could have been something that could have been over an 80, but because of defects, it fell below an 80. Yeah. And what that does for us is that kind of puts it in tiers as far as what we offer to customers. If they're looking for a blender, I would look for low 80s. If you're looking for something that could be a blender, but could be a single origin, I'd kind of be in the middle. And anything that you're looking for that's like spectacular, amazing coffee would be an 85 or above. So that's kind of how we we look at things. And that's how we would sell it to customers as well. Yeah, thanks for walking through that. And so when you're, I don't know exactly how to ask this question to you, but when you experience a coffee, and maybe you have one in mind, but what do your senses tell you? What are you experiencing? So first, it's the aroma right off the bat. When you're doing a cupping, you evaluate the dry and wet fragrance of the coffee before even touching it or tasting it because it's going to be scolding hot anyway. Mm-hmm. That right away opens up this opportunity for you to determine how sweet the coffee is going to be, how acidic you think it's going to be. If it's fruity, you'll pick that up right away. If it's defective, most of the time the smell will tell you immediately. Get it and out you're of like, you. yeah, you just kind of push that cup away. And for me, it really... I relate it more to memories and to really ridiculous foods or candies or something. And then I kind of break it down from there. So like to give an example, I was cupping a coffee one time and I was like, wow, this is like a Twix. This reminds me of a Twix. And everyone kind of looked at me like, why do you, why do you get so specific? I'm like, because that allows me to break it down. You know, I get brown sugar. I get this caramelization. I get this graham crackerness. I get this chocolate note. So from there, I kind of break it down. So... That's how I look at coffee. It's easy enough to pick up on acidity first because it stands out to you. It, yeah. it could be citric. It could be something that's too tart and it's just not pleasant. But for me, the sweetness is the first thing that I look at. That coffee sounds pretty good. <laughs> it was a micro lot. Yeah. So, yeah. Out of it, where? It was in Honduras. To me, it tasted like Twix and bananas. And huh. everyone that was along with us on the trip was kind of like what are you talking about? And then they kind of went back and they're like, yeah, I get the Twix now. I get what you're saying. I cupped in Ethiopia at the office and I associated it with Fruity Pebbles. And then I kind of broke it down from there because it was like an artificial fruit sweetness. It wasn't like authentic berries. It was just Weird. like fake fruit. Oh, well, I'm kind of hungry, but um, <laughs> that sounds awesome. And yeah. so, I mean, you were talking about memories a little bit. And what's one of your earliest memories of coffee or if you prefer... You know, I always think of coffee and I really connect it and apply it to certain people. So like when I think of my dad, I always think of like him drinking coffee in his chair and you know, kind of the scent of that on his robe and everything. Yeah. Um, do you have that same experience or, or memories? It's, it's actually funny that you mention associating coffee with a memory of your family because that's, that's really what drove me to look for a career in coffee. Mm. I came from a family that drank coffee three times a day. They didn't just do it because they wanted this jolt of caffeine. They did it because it gave them the opportunity to gather and gossip or catch up with their days or just watch the news or any, like, daytime show that they were into and just kind of talk about celebrities or politics. So I come from a Hispanic household, and they would make coffee in the morning. They would make coffee at lunchtime. And then after everyone was home, my mom would come home from work. My grandma would make coffee again at like 6 o'clock at night, and everyone would kind of just hang out and drink coffee. No one would ever turn down the cup of coffee. 
for my grandmother, of course. That's so, smart. She sounds yeah. like a great lady. Oh, yeah, definitely. And so you grew up in this environment where coffee was a big part, and yeah. you instantly knew that's kind of the direction you wanted to go? Not instantly, no. I Growing up, I wasn't really exposed to coffee as this industry where there were so many opportunities for career paths. I went to school primarily for business. So it was for business, for sales, for marketing. So from there, I worked at a large retail chain store pretty much through college. And shortly after college, I had gotten a promotion. And this wasn't necessarily a coffee store? No, no. It was uh, Bloomingdale's. So I worked there. I did sales, very successful at sales, but it just wasn't for me. I didn't want to be in the retail store environment. I was kind of at this point where I just felt like I wanted to make the most out of my career. I wanted to wake up every day and really, really enjoy what I was doing, Mm -hmm. be passionate about it. And I thought to myself, what do I really enjoy? What do I really like? And I made a list, and there were only two things on my list that were passionate enough for me where I can make a life out of it. And... It was coffee, and then it was yoga. Hmm. So I was like, okay, yoga, I can practice yoga, (laughs) and I'm happy enough doing that, but what can I do in coffee? So I just started doing some research, looking for jobs throughout Indeed, and I came across Royal Coffee New York, and I wasn't really sure what they were, what it was about. I did some research and figured out they were an importer, and this kind of opened up this door to me, like, wow, there's a specialty coffee industry, and this is what they do, and they source coffees from different countries, and they take this very seriously. I was like, this is what I want to do. So I had applied. Pretty sure my cover letter was just me rambling on about how much I love coffee. So they they brought me in for an interview, and then a second interview, and they had showed me around the warehouse, and it was just like thousands and thousands of square feet of just burlap coffee bags and I was blown away. I had never seen that before in my life. So they, yeah, they brought me on board. They were really excited to have someone that had a sales experience and the eagerness to learn about coffee as opposed to bring in someone that had been in the industry for 10 years. Mm -hmm. They just saw that passion, that determination in me and they brought me on and a lot of the beginning stages at Royal Coffee were doing a lot of the cuppings and trying to expand my palate and shadowing all the other traders and QC and everyone like that. And yeah, that was my story of how I started there. And it's going to be three years now in November. Congratulations. Brand new to the industry, only three years in. Well, it's a fun story because I feel like everybody, for the most part, has a story or a memory with coffee in their family. Yeah. Um, But it's also nice for people to know you don't have to like grow up on a producing farm or something to get a coffee job in the specialty industry. Absolutely. That was a big worry that I had going into the interview. Like, I was never a barista. I was Mm -hmm. never a roaster. I never even worked for a cafe. I wasn't sure how they were going to take that, but they were just, like, extremely welcoming. I'm glad that it happened that way. And now you're just running the office. (laughs) No, no. We've got a wonderful staff. Everyone there wears many hats. You know, we all adapt to our busy schedules, you know, I mentioned that we source the coffee. So it's very rare if all of us are in the office at Mm -hmm. one time. You know, you're either out on vacation because we get that sometimes. We have time for that once in a while or, you know, you're out on an origin trip. Yeah. So last March when you and I met, it was crazy. I had just gotten off a red eye from Honduras on to Coffee Fest in Baltimore. And the first time we met, I was running on like two hours of sleep. So... 
you held I it together. I had just like, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's coffee. There's always That's coffee. True. So one of my other coworkers was jumping on a plane to Costa Rica. So we just like missed each other. We must have seen each other for a total of one hour mm-hmm. in Baltimore before he hopped on a plane. But we love what we do. It's time consuming, but it's rewarding. Mm-hmm. It's extremely rewarding. I feel like, you know, Royal Coffee is at a really neat intersection of the market, right? So you're connected with producers and farmers, and then you're also connected with roasters and cafes. I imagine education is probably a big part of what you do, whether you're educating to the producers or to the roasters. Is that true? And and what's that look like if it is? Absolutely. So you mentioning education is great because not only does Royal Coffee import and sell green coffee, but we also have a lab. And we also import tea and sell tea as well. So we're trying to become like that one-stop shop for everyone where you can go and get this education, get what you actually need to run your business. And the education part of it actually started right when I started. So when I started at Royal, they were just building out the lab, which is also located in New Jersey right across the street from our office and main warehouse. It's just taken off this past year, this past year and a half. We brought on a new director of education. Her name is Anna Malazzi, and she comes from Stumptown, and she has, like, this wonderful background with quality control and sample roasting and now production roasting as well. But she's just extremely patient and passionate, and she creates this curriculum that's really adapting to the industry and the trends that are taking off and individual needs as well. Mm-hmm. So we do custom courses for local cafes that aren't necessarily roasting, but they want to do, like, barista courses We do cuppings, introducing people to different origins. So we just had an Indonesia kind of influenced cupping. We're going to do an Africa one coming up. And we host students for the Q class as well. That's where I did mine. We also bring in suppliers and producers to host a cupping to do a presentation so they can kind of talk about their coffee, their background as well. So it's really neat. But a lot of the education comes from things that we've come across throughout the years, like questions that we get. And we're like, you know, we should really be offering these services. Mm -hmm. It's just an added service that we need to provide to our customers. And, you know, going to origin and giving this feedback and doing all these things with suppliers is very important, too. I know we're getting more into, like, monitoring water activity, bean density, things like that. So more things that we can communicate to the roasters so that it's essentially... Not dummy proof, but we're, we're trying to make roasting so approachable that more people want to get into mm-hmm. it and not kind of back off and say, oh, this is too much. And those components of like bean density and you're talking about water as well, is that yeah. something that the farmers can easily have a little device and check and they send that information to you? Or is that when you guys go to origin and review the farms? Both. A little bit of both. You know, these things are expensive. It's not realistic to assume that a producer can go out and buy a $2,000 device just for our sake. But we have come across a lot of suppliers that are basically a cooperative. And that cooperative has been investing into these devices because they know that it's really important to us. It's important to the roasters, but it's important more for the safety of what we're consuming and for the quality of it as well. So, you know, monitoring this water activity and seeing what it does to the bean, you could determine whether maybe the moisture is too high here. Maybe we need to kind of experiment with different drying methods. Maybe we're picking the coffees too early. Maybe we're shipping them too early. It helps them alleviate a lot of issues that can come across later down the road Mm -hmm. because 
we come across defects very often, and a big one is mold. And that can happen at origin, that can happen in transit. It's, yeah, it's expensive, but we're looking to secure these devices so that when we go to origin, we could also bring these things with us and give that feedback to the producers and see how those devices can really change things for them. So you talked a little bit about the co-op, yeah, right? Um, do you have a preference or is it easier to work with co-ops versus individual farmers? What's that relationship look like? If we're working with an individual farmer, they're still getting help from either an exporting partner that we have at Origin or the cooperative. So a good example is Honduras. We work with a cooperative there, and through them, we started a microlot program that introduces us to individual producers. So we can purchase their individual lots, but we can also purchase a macro lot, as we would refer to it, from the cooperative as well. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I prefer one over the other because they're both very similar. We're still going through one major person. But when we're at origin, I prefer meeting with producers one-on-one. Yeah. I do. It's just, you know, I like hearing the stories of the coffee. I like hearing, you know, did you inherit the farm? Did you buy it? Why are you doing this? Are you passionate about it? Or is it like the culture of where you grew up that you're supposed to grow coffee? Because a lot of people will say, oh, you know, it's been in my family for years and I can't just walk away from it. I like hearing the stories. I like just really seeing the work that goes into it because it's unbelievable how much red cherries you have to pick to end up with one 60-kilo bag of green beans. It's just unbelievable. And the fact that these people ship out container loads of coffee with, like, over 200 bags is just, just remarkable. And they love seeing you there visiting them. That means so much to them, especially if you bring a customer or someone that's been buying their coffee in the U.S. It it provides more of an incentive for them to not give up, even if like the coffee prices are low or there's diseases affecting the plants. They still see this as an incentive to keep improving their quality because they're like, wow, these buyers really, really appreciate our coffee. They came all the way here to tell me that. Yeah. So it's it's really cool. Yeah, that's nice to hear. Definitely for the producers to be able to see kind of the end result of their work and not oh, just yeah. be shipping things out, but getting yep. things in return. Is there one story that really sticks out to you that you'd like to share from one of the farmers? So kind of going back to Honduras again, we visited one farmer. Well, we visited many, but this particular person stood out to me because, first of all, he was in way better shape than I was hiking up this mountain okay. and he he was at least 40 plus years older than me yeah. and he was out running me and he just had this smile on his face and like this glitter in his eyes where he was just like so happy that we were there and I had noticed like this small little shack to the left that he wasn't really including in part of his tour so he was showing us his drying patio he was showing us all the plants he was showing us any other fruits and vegetables that he grows on the farm And I had asked him, I was like, oh, what about this shack over here? Like, does this have anything to do with coffee or? And he said that over 30 years ago, his son was born in there and he just won't knock it down. He said it's just part of his family history. His son has another farm that's like a few miles away. But he just was like, oh, no, this is where my son was born. This reminds me of him. This is just a part of my farm I'll never break down, I'll never take it away, even though he can use the space. He can certainly use it, but it's just almost like a historical monument for him. And he just left it there. 
you know, he posed next to it. So we have this really cool picture of him, like, by the door. We sent it back to him. So he's, like, all in love with this portrait that he has by the door, by the famous shack. That's great. Yeah. That's pretty touching, too. It is. It is. It's, you know, it's not particular to coffee, but it just goes to show, like, you want to connect with these people. You want to connect with the history and just local customs and their culture. So I like asking all these questions aside from the usual, oh, what's your altitude and what varietals do you grow? I just, like, break away in a side conversation with them as well. Yeah. It makes it a much less one-dimensional relationship. Absolutely. Probably better and stronger. Yeah. Um, And so kind of talking about your origin journeys, have you had any neat projects recently? Yes. Recently, early July, I had gone to Peru. I visited two cooperatives in Peru. It was northern Peru because there's a lot of co-ops there and a lot of competition. So, and sorry for all of Peru, are they growing coffee everywhere? Or is it just in uh, mainly northern and central? Okay. So, San Ignacio is where we went primarily. And San Ignacio is basically immersed in coffee. Everything that they do revolves around coffee. I'm talking like you go to a local corner store and they're selling deep pulpers for coffee and you're like <laughs> you're like this is this is crazy it's like i just came to get a bottle of water and you've yeah. got like deep pulpers and motors and stuff for your farm because there's so much competition it's tough for one to stand out over the other and what we're finding now is a lot more co-ops are trying to focus on quantity versus quality, and we're trying to focus more on the quality aspect of it, of course. Mm-hmm. So we went to visit two co-ops in particular, and one of them is near and dear to me because it's basically a program that I had started back in, I want to say two years, yeah, two years ago. I had met a woman at one of the SCA expos, and she approached me. She was from Peru, and she said, this is our co-op. This is all our history. Just kind of giving me flyers and handouts. And she handed me a sample and she said, you know, there's 80 women in this cooperative. And they thought it would be really cool to kind of start this like women's brand or women's mark aside from the general co-op mark. And they had never exported any coffee to the U.S., the co-op in general, not just the women. You know, she said, we really want to find someone that can help us bring our coffee to the U.S. And I was like, oh, cool. This is awesome. But at that time, I had not gotten into sourcing coffee at all. I was just getting started in the sales part. I was to a point where I was comfortable cupping enough where I can determine if the coffee was good quality or not. But I was still very new to the industry. I wasn't sure how to approach it. And I had spoken to a coworker who was in charge of sourcing coffee from Peru and he said, oh, let's let's cup it. Let's see what we think. And let me know what you want to do. Do you want to buy this coffee or not? Uh, you know, I we cupped it. I really liked it. It stood out to me. It was it was a different profile from the usual Peru profile. So what is the typical? So and, typical uh, is heavy chocolate notes, usually a creamy body. You'll get some citrus, some tangerine notes at more of like a lighter roast. But it's usually like malty. They kind of fit into that profile. Not because that's all they're capable of, but because everyone assumes that that's the profile for Peruvian coffee and they've had so much success selling it as is, they were kind of like, oh, why change it, really? And then the coffee you cupped. It was just extremely bright, super sweet. It was like 
cherry and brown sugar and honey and all these different elements coming together in one. And, you know, I had everyone try and they're like, oh, yeah, this is really good. It was very clean. And it left this aftertaste that kind of lingered that you were like, wow, I just want more of this coffee. And we tried it as espresso. We cold brewed it. We drank it, just regular drip. And it was amazing in all aspects. So we brought in one container from them just to kind of test it out. And one container to test it out. That's still a lot of coffee. (laughs) It is a lot of coffee. It was about 250 bags. The next year we grew, we did more with them. And then this year we basically tripled what we bought from them that first year. And I wanted to go visit them. You definitely have to go visit these suppliers in person and get to know the co-ops and basically communicate what our goals are and also understanding what their goals are as a co-op. So we went to visit them and get to know them a little bit. I got to meet the president and the manager of the co-op and the board of directors, their Q graders. They gave us a tour of the wet mill and their lab where they do all the quality control. One main thing that I wanted to start with them is a microlot program. You know, they have the cup of excellence, which is these really expensive high-scoring lots that everyone kind of takes to this competition, and they have judges who ultimately determine who these winners are, and then people basically bid on the coffees. So they do have that going on, but, you know, I wanted to bring microlots because whenever we hear of microlots, we think of, oh, Colombia or Costa Rica or Honduras. So I kind of wanted to bring this new origin mm-hmm. to the surface. And bringing in microlots would allow them to get more money for Correct. Those lots, right? Correct. You receive a higher premium due to the better quality. Micro lots for us are like 85 or above, sometimes 86 or above, just to kind of mm-hmm. narrow it down a little bit more. And not only does it have to score this way, but it just has to be unique and different and complex. So I'm looking for something that doesn't taste like the traditional Peruvian profile. So I wanted to kind of communicate that message to them because that empowers individual producers too to say, okay, instead of mixing... Yeah all of my lots together, you know, let me keep this higher altitude stuff that they're essentially planting their better varietals at a higher altitude. So let me separate this, cup this, and then determine, okay, wow, I can get a better premium for this, and then I'll mix the rest of my stuff. Mm -hmm. So we were able to cup a few samples that they determined to be micro lot quality. So there were a few that I really enjoyed, and we're actually receiving samples now at the office that were still evaluating to hopefully have them late fall. Yeah, it was just, you know, to learn about their processing methods, what's making them different from others. Because, like I said, there's a lot of competition. So Mm -hmm. for this tiny co-op, there's only like 350 members. Wow. Whereas others have like 2,000 plus. Oh, wow. And 80 of those are Are women. women. Yeah. What does make it different? What are they doing differently? So are you familiar pretty much with processing methods for coffee as far as like washed and fermentation goes? Mm -hmm. So basically, when the coffee is depulped, it goes through this fermentation process. So depending on the altitude and the temperature, that fermentation process should be longer because they're really letting it open up. They're letting these sugars and this acidity kind of brighten up the cup profile. What a lot of producers do, well, not necessarily producers, but what the co-ops do at the mills is sometimes they won't even go through the fermentation. They'll depulp the cherries and they'll put the beans through this like intense washing station that's just like pressure water. So it breaks down all the mucilage from the beans, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily sit in a tank to ferment. So because of that, 
you end up with malt, chocolate, that kind of basic profile. Mm-hmm. But all of these producers are looking at extended fermentation processes because of the altitudes and because of the temperatures. So because of that, they end up with these coffees that are super acidic and bright and exciting. So that kind of led me to explain to them, like, this is what we're looking for. Yeah. You know, this is what's going to make you stand out. So it was it was really cool. I would love to try one of those sometime. Yeah. And what's the environmental factors actually changed the way that they process their coffee compared to the rest of the country? Not necessarily, because the other co-op I visited is doing the same as far as fermentation, but it's more of them actually taking the time to try the coffee at the different fermentation times Hmm. and altitudes and varietals to determine what's cupping best at what altitude with which varietal. So they're able to say, okay, you need to at least have a fermentation process of 16 to 18 hours, or you need to be at least above 1,700 meters above sea level. Or perhaps you should plant a Bourbon because it's out of your five lots. This is Mm -hmm. the best cupping one. So it's really a lot of educating for them. So they have field technicians actually go out and test all these things out and communicate that back to the producers and then bring back the samples to like the main QC lab and kind of determine it that way. For me, it just shows that they're really trying. They're really trying to stand out and they're looking to improve their quality. They're not just looking to like pump out volume. Mm -hmm. So that's what made them stand out to me a little bit more. Oh, that's really exciting. And congratulations of three years of kind of developing the relationship. (laughs) Thank you. Moving into micro lots. I think kind of, um, you know, throughout that, we heard a couple different ways that you are incentivizing people to do better or kind of the supply chain does incentivize people. But what does Royal Coffee do to incentivize better coffee grown at the producer level? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, a lot of it goes into pricing. So we do secure better premiums based on cup qualities. So, you know, it's not as easy as, oh, this is our price. We still cup the coffee and evaluate it and determine, okay, this is worth this much more. Because we also don't want someone to say they're taking this coffee at the bare minimum price. And if we don't get feedback or if we kind of just leave it open-ended, we don't want that to happen. We don't want to kind of lose that relationship. We want to build a long-term relationship with these suppliers. So we do provide better premiums based on cup quality. We do, like I said, visit them and actually communicate this to them. We actually have a program set up in the office where the minute we cup something and put in our scores and notes, it sends that directly to the suppliers. So they have instant feedback. Whether it's a pre-ship sample or something that was offered to us, they get immediate feedback. Hmm. And that to them is really important because not only are the producers working hard for this coffee, but the exporters are also, you know, sending out these samples, setting up logistics. So the way everything works is very time sensitive. So communication and feedback and securing that relationship where it's like you're always going to have us as a buyer but you know these are basically the parameters yeah so you've been in the industry for three years yeah so it might be a short window for this question but (laughs) technology i mean you're just talking about sending instant feedback how has that changed over the last three years and what do you see kind of on the horizon that's really going to make these types of relationships and what you do easier and better for producers and customers? So when I first started, we were doing a lot of the scoring and note-taking manually. Some that we integrated to 
really record and send all of this feedback was done, I want to say, a year into me starting there. You know, there are programs available. There's crops or there's things that you can use to do this. But we kind of wanted our own database that was going to just kind of be tweaked to what we're looking for Mm -hmm. and what we want to send to suppliers. And it's also used for customer cuppings as well if customers come in. That alone has taken off. And, you know, we're in a stage right now where we're looking to improve things further just to increase productivity. And, you know, it's things that I see at Origin, too. Like Mm -hmm. the other co-op that I had visited in Peru had this amazing technology service where it was almost faster and better than ours in a way. And I was just like, this is crazy. But, you know, they had the instant feedback. They were able to put like a sticker, a barcode on deliveries of individual producers. Hmm. So the producers would drop off their coffee and parchment and they would put a barcode on it, scan it. And that would load up all of this information. It would give you the producer's name, everything you need to know about their farm. You would put in the premiums that they were getting based on, you know, having below a certain amount of defects. And then once the coffee is actually cupped based on the score, they'll add in another premium. So the producer is able to log in and see all of this. So they're able to see this is exactly what I'm getting paid and this is why. So there's like a lot of improvements in technology that are leading to more transparency which I really enjoy because it it eliminates like, oh, who's really getting the money or who's really doing this? So, you know, it's not only going to work out for the suppliers, but for roasters as well. Like we're Mm going to be able to put all this information out there and we want to get to the point where we can like build this database where a customer can go in and see everything about their coffee. They can kind of build their own marketing cards based on what they want, download certificates like organic or fair trade, anything like that. So, it's going to take off in the next year or so where it's just like technology is going to run everything. It's yeah. just going to be this massive database where you can have all this information recorded. Like I was actually talking to one of our exporting partners in Honduras and I asked him about a farm and he opened up his laptop and he had Google Earth and he like measured out the plot of this person's farm wow. on his computer within like five seconds. Oh, man. That's awesome. I was able to tell me the altitude, pinpoint the maps, print it out for me. He's like, here you go. This is exactly where they are. That's all you need to know about the farm. If they have this information, that makes it even better for us mm-hmm. and for our customers as well. So it's kind of like this chain yeah. of information being handed down. And when you say customers, you're talking about the roasters. The roasters. Them. Exactly. And so like you go a step further, that'd be pretty interesting once that information starts getting to the guests at the cafes and being able Absolutely. to have an app and... Yep. See the whole chain. Yep. That's cool. Do you think transparency is good for it all? I think it is. I think it's very important because if you're taking the time to invest in this industry and to source coffees from these suppliers that are considered specialty grade, I think you owe it to them and to yourselves to understand the coffee and the history and the work that goes behind it. Because it's easy enough to pick something off an offering list and say, I want that one. Yeah. But it's it's really understanding the background of it, how it got to you, even what's going on in those countries, because you can know, oh, wow, I got this really good Nicaraguan coffee, but because of what's going on, I don't know how the supply is going to be next year. So it, it really allows you to understand just world events, too. That's something that I'm getting better with, yeah. you know, prior to working there. Aside from watching the news, it wasn't like, oh, I was looking at world events and looking at everything that's going on every day. But now you have to. You have to just educate yourself just beyond what you receive on emails or suppliers telling you what's going on. You need to really, like, do your research. Mm -hmm. Just be, like, one step ahead pretty much. 
You know, one thing that I hear a lot when I'm buying coffee or when people are talking about the coffee they're selling mm-hmm. to customers is, oh, we buy this direct from the farmer. Is that true? And is that always the best thing to be happening for coffee shops or roasteries to be buying direct? How do I put this? It's almost become a trend to say direct trade or purchase directly from the farmer. Mm -hmm. And depending on who you talk to, there's a different definition of that. And the reason I say that is it's going to be very rare to encounter someone who actually imported it themselves. So that to me is direct trade. To me, it's you went, you visited the farm, you selected the coffee that you wanted, you discussed prices, you arranged the logistics, you brought it in yourself, you dealt with all the customs exams and everything, and you roasted it and served it to your customers. Mm. That, to me, would be a definition of direct trade. Yeah. But there's others that kind of use the term loosely where it's, you know, you visited a farm on an origin trip, you met a producer, and you bought his 10-bag lot, but you still worked with an importer to bring it in Mm -hmm. to kind of alleviate any headaches or any issues dealing with the actual importing of the coffee. So those are two definitions that people associate with that. I think that there's nothing wrong with saying I purchased this directly from the farmer if you're doing A or B, because if you're actually taking the time to visit this country and support a farmer, an individual farmer, and bring in this micro lot year after year, then you are purchasing directly to the farm. And you're establishing this relationship with these farmers. And that's something that we help our customers, roasters do as well. And it's something that we encourage because we want to support these individual producers and encourage them to improve the quality of their coffee year after year. And we don't want them to kind of say one day, oh, I'm abandoning my farm because I feel like I can do something different or... I'm only producing 10 to 12 bags or I'm only doing this. You know, it it just provides more of an incentive to them. So I think that purchasing direct from a farmer, it makes perfect sense. But depending on who you're talking to, it might be like super direct or, yeah, I met them. I know them. I know them on a personal level, but I still work with an importer. Some people skip the importer part. (laughs) The most important part, of course. Yeah, no, no. (laughs) Roasting it. Roasting it is very important. Certifications. Mm Mm-hmm. Organic and Rainforest Alliance, and mm-hmm. I think a couple of them merged at some point. I can't remember off the top of my head, but are those good? Maybe that's not a great question, but how do you see these certifications? There's a lot of debates about them. Some people feel that when you focus too much on a certification, you risk the quality of the coffee because essentially if you're abiding by Rainforest or Organic rules, then you don't really have to meet a certain score for your coffee. Mm -hmm. You just have to ensure that you have biodiversity on your farm or you're not using any chemicals and you're you're just making sure that it's just this organic process that's just good for the environment, good for surrounding animals and plants and other things that you can grow on your farm other than coffee. And it really does help out the farmers as well because, Mm -hmm. you know, you're producing this healthy environment for yourself. There's no immediate risk involved but you could risk quality. I really like rainforest. I think that with all of the climate change that's going on, I think that that can really help mediate some of those issues if everyone kind of pulls together and does try to preserve biodiversity and does kind of increase these shade-grown trees that will protect the environment around the coffee. 
So I do really enjoy that. And I think organic is great because you don't have to worry about any added chemicals going in your coffee. So I do like those two certifications, but I don't like to only narrow down my purchases to that. Mm -hmm. I think it's a plus if it's certified. I always say that when I'm talking to a supplier or a potential new supplier. I'll always ask the question, but that's never going to be my first question. Yeah. Like, are you organic, fair trade, RFA certified? I always focus on the quality first, the story, and then we kind of go, oh, it's also organic. Great. That's a plus. That's yeah. an added plus. I would focus more on the quality of the coffee for sure. It's kind of expensive and difficult to get some of these certifications for the producer, right? It is. A lot of the times the coffee is organically grown. But if they can't afford the organic certification, I don't think they should be penalized because of that. Yeah. You know, if it's a farm that we've visited personally, I will tell people, hey, this guy is not using any fertilizers that aren't like organic. He's composting. He's doing all these things on his farm. I'll tell him that because sometimes we get, oh, it has to be organic. It has to be organic. I'm like, but it's organically grown. (laughs) And, you know, look at the hard work and effort that goes into all of this. It does get pricey. It does. So I try to lean people more towards the background of the farm and what they're doing as opposed to just sticking to the certification. Yeah. You know, there's times where a co-op or a farm will go in between the certs. Like one year they'll have it, one year they won't, one year they'll have it. Hmm. And it becomes a headache that way because if someone purchased it last year because it was organic, they might not want it this year. You know, we find ways around those issues, but... It doesn't necessarily affect our buying process. Yeah. For the coffee community in general, what are you most excited about in the next couple of years for the community? So I am seeing more companies involved and in showing interest in specialty coffee that aren't necessarily in the specialty coffee industry. I think that's extremely exciting because it's showing that people are getting into the craft of coffee. Mm-hmm. People are into craft beers and they're into kind of sourcing and tasting these high quality wines. And now it's kind of emerging more for coffee where you know it's easy enough to get Dunkin' or Starbucks down the street, but now people are really like looking into what can we do to make our coffee stand out more. Mm-hmm. Where I live in New Jersey, you're seeing all of these brunch spots and cafes really look for local roasteries to support them as opposed to just kind of going to like these gigantic corporations that can just send them really cheap coffee. I think for actual trends, you know, as much as people in the specialty coffee industry might say, you know, we're losing business to Starbucks or Starbucks this, Starbucks actually does, they do a really great job at putting single origins on the map. So I don't know if it was last year or the year prior to that, but, you know, they launched this whole cold brew with Nariño. Nariño in Colombia has been blowing up as far as it being a go-to origin for Mm -hmm. really remarkable coffees. Those trends go on to consumers, but then they go on to the roasters because you have these consumers then going to them saying, oh, well, Starbucks had this really cool coffee from Colombia. Do you guys carry that? Mm -hmm. And then that comes back to us like, oh, do you guys have any coffee from Nariño? I'm getting asked for it nonstop. What I noticed in Peru when I went is they send a lot of coffee to... Well, not send. They sell a lot of coffee to Starbucks in the UK and Asia. I see that as a trend. I see that as the beginning of a trend. Hmm. So eventually that will get to US Starbucks and it'll become this thing where, oh, San Ignacio Peru is this new origin. It's a new Nariño or it's, you know, do you guys have that? So Mm -hmm. I feel like it kind of runs that way as far as trend setting. 
but I'm excited for coffee. I'm excited for what's to come in the next few years. There's negative things that we need to look into too, like coffee prices right now are very low, so it's affecting a lot of producers. I think that if we work on more incentives and better pricing strategies, we can kind of keep the producers away from going into anything that might be illegal or abandoning farms or just kind of breaking away from the industry completely. And climate as well is causing like a shift in weather patterns at origin. So between prices and weather, yeah, you can look at the negative side of things. But I think if we push forward and just you know, explain to people why we're looking to pay more for the coffee. And so they're going to pay more in turn for buying the coffee from us because we want to support those producers. We don't want everyone to just say, okay, this is done. This yeah. is a trend and it's over and we're going to get out because coffee prices right now are well below cost of production. Yeah. It's becoming scary. Well, hopefully that turns soon. Yeah, hopefully. So this is a DC coffee podcast. But you sell coffee all over the <laughs> the East Coast. And so for the people in D.C., where do you like to go if you're visiting D.C. for coffee? D.C. has a lot of good coffee. Thank you. Yeah. So slightly out of D.C., there's Commonwealth Joe. Mm-hmm. They're awesome. Right in D.C., you've got Compass. You've got Zeke's. You've got Swings. So I think you guys have a really, really good surrounding environment with coffee and culture mm-hmm. surrounding it. What's your favorite? Uh-oh, the table's that. turned. <laughs> My favorite is typically whatever I'm drinking. Uh, not always. Sometimes I don't like the coffee. But um, the question. Yeah. yeah. Well, as you know, there's so many different <laughs> types of coffee and people roast it differently. I agree. Yeah. So it's always a fun little conversation that you can have each day with the coffee. That's true. And you, at the beginning, were talking about Royal Coffees getting a little bit into tea. Yeah. Um, and I just finished a book about Alfred Pete for Pete's coffee. And he was actually a big proponent of tea, mm-hmm. saying that it's extremely delicate and also like tasty notes for tea. It teaches you how to taste for coffee and vice versa. I agree. You agree? I do. I think it's harder. Really? I do. Why? Exactly because of what you said. It's so delicate that you have to treat it that way. And there's so many different elements to tea. It's similar to coffee where understanding where it came from can really influence the taste of it. And, and I know nothing about tea, just to kind of put in a disclaimer there. You but, know more than most. <laughs> but I do jump in on the tea cuppings every so often. And it's really tough for me to nail down spices and floral elements. Hmm. And I think that anyone who can do that and really differentiate those tasting notes is very talented. It's very easy for someone to taste something that's very floral and say, okay, this is like potpourri or soapy. But you need to like actually break it down and understand those floral elements. Mm-hmm. It's very, very, very intricate. Very intricate. And we've done a lot of pairings too where we'll do like teas and chocolate mm. or tea and cheese. Yeah. We've done events like that. And just to be able to pair it with food alone, like I've never seen that happen. So I think it's really cool that people are just kind of opening doors to it that way. I always make a joke with the guys that work on the tea side in the office because there's a lot of coffees that we cup that have a delicate body. So I'll always say, oh, it has like a tea-like body. And they always look at me and like give me the the squinty eyes. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not really a cupping note. <laughs> like, what does that really mean? I'm like, oh, it means it's delicate. Like, okay, so say delicate. Don't say tea-like because just like coffee, different teas have different bodies. Mm-hmm. So I kind of made a general assumption yeah. by saying it that way. But 
We've actually been doing the tea side a little over two years. So when I first started, they were just getting started with tea, but now it's kind of taking off a little bit more. Well, it was nice to hear a little bit about the inner office politics. (laughs) Pretty tough on your coworkers. (laughs) When I started this, I was much more like, oh, only coffee, no tea, only Mm -hmm. specialty coffee. And I think it's nice for everybody to sometimes step back and say, everything's kind of valid in a lot of ways for different people. Absolutely. And so to give everything their voice is something that I think is important. It is. But lastly, before we go, anything else that you didn't get to share that you wanted to share? I know that where we're heading as a company is definitely in a direction where, like I mentioned earlier in the conversation, you know, we want to become that one-stop shop for everyone where we can offer education, we could offer coffee, we can offer tea. But most importantly, Royal Coffee New York is a family-owned business. So it's been around since 95, started in Staten Island. So hence the name, but now Mm -hmm. we're in New Jersey. It's really a space where everyone is constantly collaborating and everyone's opinion is heard. And we do the same with customers. We talk on the phone, we send emails, we encourage people to stop by so we can give tours. We're really trying to become, not that we aren't already, but we're trying to become this organization where someone can come and basically start a business from scratch. That's really cool. For anyone who might have some hesitation or is thinking of starting a roastery or a tea business and doesn't really know what to do or how to start or thinks that it's impossible or way too hard to do, I think just coming in and or just calling us and talking to us would really alleviate a lot of those issues or concerns, I would say. But if you're ever in New Jersey, you need to come by and see us. I'd love to give you a tour and show you the lab. The lab is pretty awesome. Nice. Yeah, it's like a... A playground for coffee. Oh, that sounds awesome. (laughs) I'll be there. But yeah, no, thanks for coming in. And for listeners, if you ever thought about starting a coffee company or a roasting, it sounds like Royal Coffee New York is a great resource to either talk to Britt or somebody else in the company and learn from them. Learned a lot from you today. And and thanks for making the drive into the city. No, no problem at all. Thank you. And that's a wrap, folks. Stay up to date with Royal Coffee New York on their website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And follow Brit on Instagram at underscore just Brit. Keep listening to Drip, share us with your friends, and let us know what types of interviews you would like to hear by sending us a note on our website at dcdrippodcast.com. A big thanks to Mike Crockett, the engineer, Dubway Studios for hosting us in New York, the Broke Royals for music, Rebecca Silverstein for website and graphic design, and Wesley Stukenbroker for creative support. Thanks again for listening, and keep brewing community.